We have another packed edition of Up in the Blue Seats this week. The Post Larry Brooks and Molly Walker join us. Larry gives his thoughts on former Ranger Kevin Lowe getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Molly and I discuss our Temi Panarin statement Thursday on Instagram about waiting for an agreement in place before getting back on the ice. Molly and I also chat with hockey analytics expert Megan Cheka. Larry and I have a terrific interview with former Ranger Darius Kasparitis. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. Welcome to the Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you're using Apple, we need those five-star ratings. But not just that, write a nice review. Write something nice about Ron, the show, and tell us that you're enjoying the show, and we'll keep bringing you the heat every week. We're bringing a lot of heat this week as Ron Duguay, former Ranger number 10, is joined by hockey analytics expert, Megan Cheka and Molly Walker from the New York Post joins us for that conversation. Larry Brooks will join us to talk about the Hall of Fame selections, the Hockey Hall of Fame selections. And we're also joined by former Ranger Darius Kasparitis. Speaking of Ron, here he is, number 10, Ron Duguay. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Jake. And yes, like every week, we try to bring you the best show possible, the best guest possible, whatever's in the news whatever's in the news that week whatever's going on in the hockey world but i thought that i would bring in my first russian a friend of mine darius kasparitis what a character as you know he started off with the Islanders, pittsburgh and then he up with the rangers but he also played a lot of olympic hockey but more than anything else it's just his sense of humor his thoughts on hockey on uh, what it was like for him when he first came in and what the game is like now and then we talk with megan megan who's into analytics does a lot of analytics and I was introduced uh, by Steve Aliquette, who I work with at uh, Madison Square Garden Network. So a lot of good stuff. And uh, so let's get into it. And first off, training camp is supposed to be coming up in just a couple of weeks, Ron. And, you know, players are starting to get back to practice, coming back to New York, thinking about where these hub cities might be. And our buddy New York Post own Molly Walker, who just celebrated her one-year anniversary, by the way, congratulations to Molly at the New York Post, wrote about it and hops in to join us now on the show. Welcome in, Molly. Yes, it was my one year. Very exciting. I stuck around. So, yes, but uh, lots of updates. Molly, before you get into it, and I need to ask you something right out of the gate. I thought when we're talking hub cities that a couple weeks ago, the league had decided already that Vegas was one of those hub cities, and they were trying to find another one. So was I mistaken, or is that still the case? Um, You're not 100% mistaken. It hasn't been officially announced by the league or anything that it's definitively one of the hub cities. That being said, it has been the one city that's been rumored the most from the very beginning and a lot of people are pretty confident that that is definitely going to be one of the hub cities but again no official word from the NHL the league is closer to selecting the two hub cities for phase four the final six contenders are Las Vegas Los Angeles Chicago Edmonton Vancouver and Toronto as of Tuesday there's still no official date on phase four yet but that's been what the league has been rumored to be choosing from at the moment so how about players coming back from overseas are 
Are they are they all back yet? Are we still expecting players to still show up? And will there possibly be kind of any issues with them coming back into the country? So not all the players that are overseas have traveled back yet, but a couple of players that have been in the country itself has have started to travel back to New York. Even though, yes, on Wednesday, New York, Jersey, and Connecticut just implemented a mandatory 14-day quarantine to those traveling from states with high COVID-19 infection. Um, it's unclear about other countries, but I know Igor Shevchurkin traveled back from Florida this past weekend, so he just missed that mandatory 14-day quarantine because it was reported that he was already back on the ice Wednesday, and Pavel Buchnevich also traveled back to New York this past weekend. So they just missed the mandatory 14-day quarantine, cause especially for Igor coming from Florida. Uh, it was reported that cases there absolutely skyrocketed over the past week so but you know they wouldn't let any players onto the ice or even into the facilities until they were tested and it came back negative and they underwent all the return to play protocols and guys on that front we actually have a little bit of breaking news that i'm reading right now artemi panarin has posted to his instagram and here's what he said this was uh the, around 3 30 p.m 3 40 p.m eastern here on thursday i am very much looking forward to the playoffs with the new york rangers i have concerns not only about the health of the players and their families but also about the long-term prosperity of the NHL. For nearly two decades, the players have protected the owner's income with escrow, including throughout this pandemic crisis, even as owner's equity continues to grow exponentially. Some big words in here. It is time to fix the <laughs> escrow. We as players cannot report to camp to resume play without already having an agreement in place. We are all in this together. Also, I know the process for selection of the hub cities is ongoing. I sincerely wish that my teammates and I could train and play games at MSG and bring employment and economic opportunity safely back to New York City for Rangers fans and all New Yorkers. That is on Artemi Panera's Instagram. And it seems that, you know, he's not ready to come back until there is an agreement in writing, guys. It's big business. Let's put it that way. We've seen it with the other sports. We've seen it with baseball. So no surprise that the same thing is going to happen with hockey. Now, I know hockey players, and I know that a lot of them want to get back to work. But sometimes you got to take care of business before you get back to work because there's a lot of stake. There's a big pie, right? And the big pie is the money pie. And it's how it gets divided. So I understand all that. Let's just hope this thing doesn't get dragged out too long. But from what I know from the past, the players and the owners have found a way to do something that's fair. So hopefully it'll all be resolved and training camp will start on July 10th. And the first game will start July 30th. And about 10 days after that, the Rangers will beat Carolina. So there's that goes. Well, this is a big statement. Molly, what do you think about Panarin? I mean, is he right? And I mean, you talked about guys returning. Now this affects, you know, he's the star of the show. So this is going to affect other guys returning and playing alongside him. I would think they might sit out as well. 100%. I mean, coming from him, it obviously carries a lot of weight. And I definitely think a lot of players are going to take note of that. I mean, from the players that I've spoken to, I've been on a couple of conference calls with Islanders players. And the overall consensus that I felt is that they are more anxious to get back on the ice rather than afraid for their health or afraid to infect their families or anything like that, which is good to hear that they feel okay. But it's definitely not speaking for every single NHL player in the league. And if they're going to get to the point where they're shuttling all these 
players out to hub cities if they don't want to go you know how, how could you force them without coming to an agreement beforehand so I think they definitely have a lot of things they need to hash out before they start putting any more dates on anything especially for phase four you know they already went ahead and put a date on phase three for training camp so we'll see if they actually get to the point of phase four because clearly every player hasn't voiced their opinion and Artemi Panarin just did. The bread man has spoken guys. My guest today is an entrepreneur and co-founder, CEO of Stathletes, analytics company providing valuable insights to over 22 leagues worldwide. Welcome to the show for the first time, Megan Cheka, and with her also from the New York Post is Molly Walker. So welcome to the two of you. Megan, I have to ask you, how did you get started with analytics? Because I was introduced to analytics probably maybe six years ago. I did some work. I did some work at MSG TV, worked with Steve Valley cat the goaltender and uh so i had the pleasure of having him kind of show me where all this came from because for me i come at it as old school so we were a good combination on tv it was what i saw what i witnessed my eye and for him he was taught at some point uh through some coaching the angles and the analytics and percentage all these things so he managed to put all this stuff together so i was introduced to it and i uh I was so impressed when I was doing the games, he would show me that it was impressive. So for you, what was the beginning for you to get started and be so interest, interested in analytics? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a long story. And I never really thought that I would work in sports or in hockey, to be honest. Uh, I went to school, to university for quite a while in economics, stats, uh, finance. And uh, my brother at the time was playing junior hockey, had hurt his back. And so he was just training some NHL players, was quite young, still wanted more stats behind it. I was always a baseball player growing up, basketball player. So I knew a lot about analytics from the other sports. And then as well, I actually worked at a Fortune 500 company um, on their analytics side. So I had a bit of exposure to a lot of different avenues that use data in ways to make informed decisions and thought, why not bring a bit more of that to hockey? So in combination, just sort of started working on it about 12, 13 years ago. Um, and we actually incorporated as a company 10 years ago this year. So been around sort of before analytics was a buzzword. And like you said, I mean, I think the the great combination is having that eye test and old school and merging that with, you know, some more advanced technologies. So um, we've had a lot of success, especially in the last five years, but certainly been a process of how that looks like and how we work with different types of clients. When you say your brother, you say general manager, John of the Phoenix Coyotes. <laughs> And he's been there. He's been there a few years, and he's had some success. They uh, recently signed to new, new contract, so obviously uh, it's been working for him. And so, what's your relationship like with him? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, we started this about twelve years ago, so we were on divergent paths in terms of like he. I think he always wanted to be a manager in the NHL, and very natural for him to move to that position at twenty-six years old, which. I think for a lot of people, it's pretty shocking. But, you know, it was just a, a good fit for him and his career. But for me, I've always been on the analytics side, the entrepreneurship side, you know, building teams and engineering. It kind of shocks people. I don't really talk to him about work or hockey too much. Uh, sort of offline, you know, we're family. And then online, it's like I'm just working on building a, a great company and an international company. So 
you know, it's definitely always great to have, uh, you know, a sounding board for, for new projects or really high level different ideas. But, you know, we have a company of about 70 people now. So, you know, internally always trying to build um, within the environment that I work in day to day. On that note, Megan, I, I saw in a previous interview that you had said that you don't, you don't want to be a GM of a team like your brother. <laughs> you want to own a team. Is, is that an ultimate goal of yours? I think so, because I think when you're an owner, you get to make all the decisions, right? And allocate resources. And I've always been like, even today, um, there's a, a big tech conference and in Toronto, I mean, it's virtual, but 75,000 people show up and discuss ideas. And, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in that world and, and driving change at, at a high level, not just on the hockey operations side or sports operations side. So I guess, yeah, my ultimate goal whether it's an NHL team or another hockey team, I would love to be an owner and be able to like make, you know, interesting and new types of decisions in, in the sport. I definitely, I mean, the concept of athletes in general is, is truly groundbreaking. My favorite part for me is the idea that you're painting a bigger picture for teams that are looking into these prospects and putting together a report that mixes stats and ident- identifying it factors and traits that go beyond just what you see on the ice. Why was that so important for you to bring into hockey and just sports in general? Well, I think always there's a challenge, whether it's with scouts, whether it's with managers, you have limited time, right? Limited time, resource, and a lot of biases as well. So whether it's like recency bias, you just watched a certain prospect and you really liked them. So maybe value him differently than someone you watched, you know, eight months ago. There's all sorts of issues with, you know, the eye test and the human brain. So when you look at it from like a quant perspective, like numbers don't lie in terms of, you know, was that a pass or not? What type of shot was it? So we try to make very black and white sort of data set um, and then give them to our clients. To, to work with and make informed decisions. You're doing analytics and you're evaluating players, very effective. But what about the psychology of a player? Are you going to get into that at all when you're trying to determine a player, trying to figure out a complete player? Are you going to be able to combine the psychology with the analytics or you just stick strictly all analytics? Well, from our side, I mean, performance, what's on the ice, we can quantify that. What type of player they are in the dressing room, uh, what type of player fits with certain teams. We like to leave that up to our clients. So I think there's always that, you know, element of the decisions that you need a good manager, you need someone that understands the information that we're giving to them and the models and that there are flaws, right? Um, with every decision, there's gray areas. And, you know, there can be certain players that work with other teams much better than, you know, someone else. So we're very open to be like collaborative and, you know, we like to listen and have feedback from everyone we work with. Um, and at the end of the day, it is their decision, right? A, a lot of people extend their contracts or lose their jobs off these big decisions. So we're never the end goal. We always think we're just part of the process and more information. When I'm thinking about what you're doing, you're doing it because you saw a need, but you're also wanting to help other m- women, correct? Because I believe you have a seminar coming up on Friday where you're actually teaching some of this or talking about you'd love to see more women involved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a huge area that, of growth for women in terms of, you know, technology, analytics, using data. So I'm actually speaking at the Women in Sport Tech event. And I know one of the women is from Toronto, but she now works with San Jose Sharks that organizes it. So it's going to be me and then as well, Kendall Boyd from Seattle. 
Seattle, who's a VP of analytics. So just discussing how it's changing hockey and, you know, creating more space for diversity and, and different interests. Women's hockey in general, with the young Olympians, their success and where it's at right now, do you feel like the NHL, I know they've made some strides recently to want to help women's hockey. Do you think there could be a lot more done by the NHL to want to be able to push them to another level? Because I personally, having played in the NHL, I've watched women's hockey and I find it very interesting. I love watching them. Entertaining to me. Do you think not enough is being done? You know, I think that's a tough question because I think whatever is done with women's hockey, you want it to be sustainable, right? You don't want it to just be like a flash in the pan. And I know some years in the Olympic years or people that are on national teams get a lot more player development and time allocated. So I'd like to see like a framework for sure that has more support. And I think data can change that as well. So I actually worked um, for the Olympics as well as the world championship that was in Finland. And I mean, when you talk about women, especially the goalies, like there's not that much difference between some of the, the men. Um, and, and we've seen that with some of the women playing, you know, pro men's hockey. And like you said, it, it is a different game in some ways, but, you know, the Olympic gold medals between U.S. and Canada have been epic, right? So there's definitely the interest there, I think, in terms of, like, fans liking it, uh, younger kids liking it, whether it's young boys or girls. I think it's very, you know, aspirational. So I'd like to see more resources poured into that, but in a way that we can continue it year over year. Well, I saw it in an interview with The Athletic that you had that the 2018 Olympic Games was the first time staff leads secured a contract to cover women's hockey so I'm just curious how has your work with women's hockey in general progressed since then yeah I mean it's always a challenge right and I think with the the current scenario where you know you have the NWHL then you have the PWHPA I think that's their their acronym Uh, so you have sort of you know competing uh, different types of groups as to where national level you know, players are going and what's going on overseas. Even I think Sweden had some issues too with their women's team. So not unique to to one country or one group that, you know, even soccer, right? Uh, That there's not challenges with women's sport. So just continually trying to put time and effort into collecting more data. Actually just did a, a hackathon with a group of graduate students on the women's data. Uh, both from the Olympics and the rivalry series, just to get more information flowing uh, to these players who are, you know, Olympic uh, medalists and in many cases, gold medalists. So incredible athletes that I think need to be supported more. And I'm trying to do everything I can with my resources. Have you been at Madison Square Garden and watched the Rangers play? Uh, yeah, I actually put together a couple different analytics for you, uh, both on the Rangers and on the uh, XM playing Carolina. If you want me to rattle off a couple couple areas we were looking at yeah so the one interesting thing about the rangers and i'm sure you all know is you know the relatively young defense so they actually were second in the nhl with 33 percent of their passes leading to shot attempts so pretty impressive um as well as like adam fox you know leading defenseman in the offensive zone puck touches when looking at five on five and then also building on that like possession time has increased a lot this year so they were actually ranked 10th last year this year they were third and the biggest change was Panarin was fourth among forwards in possession time per game only uh behind Barzell Eichel and Patrick Kane and the other really interesting matchup sort of with Carolina maybe something to look look for is they were uh fifth in the NHL in controlled entry rate so very like puck possession style that was Philip Heedle at 77% control, followed closely by Panarin. Um, this is interesting because the uh, the Hurricanes actually struggle to deny chances following zone entries. So if they can kind of exploit that deficiency within Carolina, 
I think they have a good chance of winning the, the play-in. Ron, she came guns blazing, prepared with the numbers for this series. <laughs> yes. I, I got to follow up with the last one. If you were to pick a winner in that series, pick. I'm not going with Carolina. This is a Rangers podcast. I'm going to go with the Rangers. <laughs> I, I have smart choice. I actually choice. do think that they have been, you know, coming on. So I think for someone like Carolina, it's, it's a scary team to, to face. So um, I think you, you guys will all have more stuff, exciting stuff to talk about come August. Okay. Well, Megan, thanks for your time. We're, we have to have you back on the show because all this is very interesting, uh, especially if you're tracking the Rangers. We want to know if you're tracking the Rangers. We want to know. All right. So thanks for your time, Megan. Yeah. Thank you as well. Appreciate it. Now joining us, Rangers Hall of Fame beat writer for the New York Post, Larry Brooks. You can follow him on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy. So Larry, welcome. Uh, let's get right into it and talk about uh, what you know as of today, the uh, current situation with the NHL and, and moving forward and what are the plans? Everything is on the table right now, uh, Ronnie. The NHL and NHLPA are, are in ongoing negotiations there, uh, which includes a hub city, return to play, safety and protocols, plus a collective bargaining agreement extension. And I was told today actually by by uh, an individual who's familiar with the process that um, it will all be uh, presented to the players as one package, the return to play protocols, the dates, the timing, the hub cities, and the CBA extension will all be presented to the players for a full membership vote. And I would expect I would expect that would be at some point in this somewhat near future. I don't know that it'd be 48 hours, 72 hours, the beginning of next week. But the timeline right now, which is temporary, and remember, we are we're talking about best case scenarios here because in the end, it's not the owners, it's not the players, it's not the union. It's the virus that will ultimately have the final say. You know, just recognizing that all the time, the tentative date for training camp open is July the 10th, and the tentative date for the teams to travel to their hub cities are July 23rd or 24th, and the tentative date to start the tournament is July 30th. And so in order to, to hold to those to that timeline, um, a decision would have to be reached, I would think, in the, in, in, in the next week or so, at the, at the very outside, probably the next four to five days, because we're still dealing with a number of players in Europe who are kind of caught in between. They want to get over here because there are protocols to observe when you're, when you're flying in, although my understanding is that guys will be combining the charter flights over here. They won't be flying commercial, but there will still be some protocols coming over from Europe. So guys don't want to get caught in between. They don't want to come over necessarily before there's an agreement. If somehow there's, you know, there is no return to play, they don't want to come over too late. So I, I think we're all looking at, you know, a week's time frame at the outside in order to get this settled. And again, settled between the league and the players, but not settled as far as the coronavirus is concerned, because we see if, you know, I, do, I don't know how the NHL will respond if certain states, I say Arizona, Florida, Texas are hotspots and the teams are scheduled to have training camps in those states, they may need to look for another option there. Okay, I just want to change the subject 
a little bit right now. John Tortorello just had his birthday, turned 62, I believe yesterday. And so when I saw that, I thought of you right away. <laughs> and I thought, well, we got to make a mention to John because he's still in the league. He's still somewhat successful in, in Columbus. And uh, But he was a Ranger coach and for, for the most part successful. Everyone knows that you kind of had a few run-ins with him. And so I, I have to ask you, was that really real? Or did you feel like coach was being a little bit intimidating on everyone and you kind of had to stand your ground against them? Both, I guess. It was, it was real. And I did think he tried to intimidate reporters who asked him questions that he didn't appreciate. It's our job or my job, certainly working for the New York Post, to get the answers. And we uh, had a uh, an adversarial relationship. But it, for the most part, we had an adversarial relationship. But we also, I think, had a certain amount of respect for one another, although I don't want to talk for him because he may have no respect for me. So, uh, you know, something I don't really enjoy talking about John Tortorella at all. And I thought I'd put you on the spot and just thought it. No, that's fine. I, no, I, yeah. I, I, that's fine. But I, but I will respond by saying I don't enjoy talking about John Tortorella. Okay, well, let's change subject. Let's talk about, again, what's in the news this week, and that's Hockey Hall of Fame selection. So I, I want to ask you before we start talking about the players themselves, I need to ask you, do you think the bar was set higher, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago on a player going into the hall versus today? Or is it all about the same? And you know, you know who would be a good person to ask that question, although he would not be able to answer it because he's sworn to confidentiality, John Davidson, because he's a member of the of the committee. However, when you know it's like Fight Club, you, you know, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of being on the Hall of Fame selection committee is you don't talk about the selection process. So I, I don't appreciate the process. I appreciate the fact that the 18 members of that committee approach their job with integrity. I, I am not questioning the people on the committee or the votes that they cast as being somehow shady or being illegitimate. However, it's a secret process. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know what the, what, what, where the bar is set. The bar is set by 18 people. It's not set by a large electorate. Um, we don't, we're not privy to the debate. We don't know why Kevin Lowe was elected this year, but was not elected the last 12 years. So, I mean, there were no explanations. So I can't tell you. <laughs> so that goes to the current player and players that are in. Now we know Jerome Ginla, Marianne Hosa, Doug Wilson, and Kevin Lowe. Now, if you look at Kevin Lowe, solid player. Point-wise, not a whole lot there, but he was on six Stanley Cup teams, one of them the New York Rangers. So I was always stunned that that Lowe hadn't been in years ago. Honestly, I, I think maybe, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, I looked and I thought, well, Kevin Lowe's not in the Hall of Fame. Because when I watched those teams, I had great appreciation for the value he brought. Um, it was a fire wagon team for the most part during the regular season. And he had the unenviable job of, of trying to be responsible. And though they did tighten it up a little bit in the playoffs, they, they still were, you know, maybe not quite run and gun, but they also weren't the Jacques Lemaire trap devils. And so, and Kevin Lowe was as good in his own end as, you know, almost anybody. 
and his leadership contributions to that team. And I know in New York, you know, there was a reason that Sergei Zuboff developed as a rookie. And one of the reasons is because he was playing with Kevin Lowe as his partner. I, I don't want to glorify, you know, over glorify the situation, but Kevin Lowe, I think, had been overlooked for a very long time. I don't think there are many defensive oriented defensemen like Lowe who attained the status that he did. Well, I also have to make a mention as far as the Hall of Fame, Kim St. Pierre with three gold medals. She was a goaltender for the Canadian Olympic team. And then Kenny Holland went in as a builder. So congratulations to all of them. And Larry, thank you for your time. And we'll talk next week. Thanks, Dukes. My guest today is a former first round pick, fifth overall in the 1992 NHL draft, who played 14 years. Four of those played with the New York Rangers. Also, he is a four-time Olympian, three-time medalist, winning one gold medal, one silver, and one bronze. He was inducted into the Russian and Soviet Hockey Hall of Fame in 2016. Welcome the always colorful Darius Kasparaitis. Darius, welcome to our show. Larry's here with us also. Wow, wow. Wow, that, that introduction is like my last name, very long and boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to be honest with you. I have to clear something up because when I think of you, I think of you as a Russian, but you're born in the country of Lithuania. So how is it that you're from that country, but you played for the Russians in the, in the Olympics? How did that work? Oh, you know, uh, when I started playing hockey, it was Soviet Union. So we had Lithuanian Republic. So uh, all, all, all the best athletes played for Soviet Union. And then when Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, I made a decision to represent Russia because hockey was not uh, exist in Lithuania at that time. And, uh, you know, and I realized that the best competition for me would be playing for Russia. And uh, that's why I choose to play for Russia. And I played until uh, my, you know, uh, retirement. No, I, until I uh, retired from NHL, then I made a decision go back and play for Lithuania because you know I'm not Russian I'm Lithuanian and uh, it's basically you know I was born in Lithuania and uh, you know and uh, Russians never consider me as Russian and uh, and here uh, in the United States people think that everybody's from that uh, part of the world are Russian in that country how did you become such a good hockey player in Lithuania you played hockey there right as a youth hockey player uh, yeah, I started skating uh, first time when I was eight. Uh, I loved, uh, you know, I fell in love with the game right away because, you know, I loved the uh, equipment, uh, you know, how the hockey, hockey players dressed up. I, I loved that part. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I don't know why. I just, uh, I, right from the first start, you know, when I started playing hockey uh, from the age of eight, I always had this competitive spirit in me that I want to be the best uh, in Lithuania. And then I went to Russia. When I was 14, and I tried to, to achieve the same goals there, I don't know, something in me, the competitiveness, you know, I think any athlete has it, you know, that's how I pushed, uh, you know, I was I was just uh, doing uh, whatever, you know, and I, I, I was discovered at age 14 for, for the Russian uh, uh, hockey team, which had Dinamo Moscow, which is a big club. And then, uh, you know, I moved to Russia to play hockey there, more organized and more professional. When you came over uh, to your first training camp with the Islanders, were, were you, had the style you showed in the NHL, aggressive, physical player, was that the way you played on the on the big ice in uh, the Soviet Union? Not really. No, I was uh, maybe, uh, I was like, uh, you know, uh, hard-fought defensive. I play, uh, you know, I played physical 
and uh, you know I hit people, but not as much as I did in NHL. You know, because in Russia, you know, Soviet system, you know, you have to be uh, more moving the puck, making nice passes, you know, things like that. So I, I consider myself more like you know, uh, not a finesse player, but more like a two-way uh, game player. You know what I'm saying? But when I came to NHL, it was so easy for me to hit everybody. You know, it was I was shocked. So I think uh, Al Arbor realized that you know that was my biggest talent. You know, I thought I was power play specialist, but I don't think uh, you know he realized that that talent I have. But you know, I, he realized that I can uh, put a lot of damage playing against top players from other teams. And uh, I think right from the first day in uh, New York Islanders, I remember. Uh, I never forget. No, I, I came to the United States two days before the actually regular season started, and uh, I had two practices with the Islanders. My my thought was I'm gonna go to the minors, you know, to get used to to the lifestyle and blah blah blah. But what happened? They put me in a lineup right away against New Jersey Devils, and I never forget my first shift in NHL. I stepped on the ice and I hit one guy, but you know, right my first shift, I hit him, and while while I was hitting him, you know, he was falling down. I think it was Tom Chorsky or somebody else, and they hit the guy right behind him. So and I ended up hitting two guys with one hit, and uh, I never forget that. You know, it was so uh, I don't know why it was so much easier to uh, to play physical hockey in the NHL. As you developed into a physical defenseman, did that become your trademark? Or did you enjoy playing that way more than you enjoyed being a two-way guy in in, uh, in international hockey? Oh, you know, I, I, I felt really appreciated. You know, I, I felt like, you know, big hit in any game. You know, people appreciated that, you know. And I realized how popular I became in New York uh, when I played with the Islanders because, you know, they loved the way I played. You know, I didn't care about anybody. I was, uh, you know, hitting uh, anyone and uh, anytime. So uh, in Russia, I don't think we <laughs> concentrate on that style of, of game, you know. So when I came here, you know, I developed the sense of the game and I realized that it can be rewarded too. I mean, uh, you know, people love that. And, uh, you know, you always, as a hitter, you know, as a physical defenseman, you always feel pressure. You, are, you know, like people feel pressure scoring goals. You know, I felt pressure making a huge hit or a huge impact in the game almost every every game, you know. I felt like people came to watch me and I have to, you know, show up and uh, throw a couple of nice hip checks or nice hits and, uh, you know, and, uh, and and get the crowd going. Darius, you didn't seem to have a lot of fear. In 92, the, the game was still very physical. There was a lot of fighting. So although you were playing a physical game, did you have a fear of all the fighting? Because you didn't seem like you did have. I didn't realize that the fighting was an art, you know. I tell you, just like you know, you just drop your gloves and go. But when I, when I, you know, I, I, I tried to drop my gloves in the beginning of my career in NHL. I got my ass kicked uh, most of the time. As long as I, you know, anytime I fought North American, uh, they would, you know, beat me badly. So I started taking on more on European guys. <laughs> but I realized, you know, big before told me, listen, this is not your job. Your job is to hit people. Our job is to fight. So uh, I realized that, you know, that was not my part of the game. And I realized one thing, you know, that, that as long as I don't drop my gloves, I, I drove people crazy. And, and they took a lot of penalties on me. And I made a lot of power plays for my team. And I thought that was a part of the game too, you know. Uh, so I, I probably became more like an instigator, not, uh, you know, a fire fighter guy. So speaking of Russian hockey players, I know that one of the greats is Ovechkin. You have a friendship with him, I believe, because I've noticed on your social media that I believe you gave him a gift 
for him to auction off. And what's your relationship with Ovechkin? Oh, I knew Alex from uh, 2006 Olympics. You know, we played together on the same team, but we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't connect uh, as, as, as deep. I mean, or as, as close as we did right now during the uh, this coronavirus epidemic. Because Alex was uh, staying in uh, Florida, his wife just gave birth, and uh, you know, we trained together all fights, and we play, uh, and we, we skated two times a week. You know, and uh, we had other NHL players skating with us, and uh, I don't know, we just became uh, good friends. And uh, we might stick. You know, they the stick I had uh, for a long time that's after I scored game 7 overtime goal against Buffalo Sabres because the Penguins I didn't know what to do with that stick you know it was framed in my uh, it, it was framed I had a stick in New York in my basement when I played for the Rangers and then when I, when I moved to Florida you know there was no room for, for the stick to put anywhere so I kept it in garage for like almost 11 years and then uh, suddenly one day in the morning I actually Don, Don Maloney's kid staying with me Donnie Jr. so Don Maloney's kid you know uh, Donnie I say listen maybe I should sell the stick because it's like I, I can't like I cannot do anything about it so uh, and uh, Donnie was training with us he told Ovi that listen Casper is driving crazy all morning he wants to sell this stupid stick on my internet and all Ovechkin goes what stick and uh, you know I say it's game 7 overtime and Ovi goes oh my god I watched the game I watched the game I remember he's scoring that goal can I have it so he got so excited and I was like wow this guy is crazy so he basically <laughs> he took the stick away from me and uh, he was so happy he actually texted me last night uh, he showed he showed uh, you know Spotty put a stick in his house and he was very grateful and uh, I was actually grateful that somebody has such a passion appreciation for the game of hockey you know history of game and you know I know a Gretzky game was stick recently but I don't think I'm Gretzky and I would never be Gretzky but it's still cool to have a guy who's who's very, uh, you know, interested in the game, like he is. You mentioned you were down there uh, working out with Ovechkin, but I believe Shesterkin, Igor Shesterkin, was also on the ice with you. What are your impressions of him as a as a young man, and what are your impressions of him uh, maybe as a goaltender, if if, uh, if you were able to form any? No, no, I skated, I skated with us two times. I, I, I realized, you know, it might be a little bit on Hank, Hank because when Hank came to the league, he was exactly, you know, a uh, young, young player and uh, not not young in the shit circuit, but still. And his competitive spirit, you know, I I saw him and Alex going against each other every uh, time we skated, you know. Uh, all we want to score a goal on him so badly and he wanted to stop so badly. So I feel, uh, you know, the Rangers have a good prospect. I mean, good good goalie, actually, because he's, uh, he's a very passionate player, I can tell. And uh, I think that you guys, uh, I mean, the New York Rangers had very good luck with the goalies lately. They made the announcements on the players going into the Hall of Fame. Some of them you've played with that are there already. But yesterday, Kevin Lowe, whom you played with with the Rangers, uh, is now in the Hall of Fame. Do you believe, when you think of when you've seen his play, do you believe that you would have voted for him to go in the Hall of Fame from what you've seen? Well, I didn't play with Kevin Lowe. I played against him, but I, I knew that he brought a lot of respect to the game when I played against him. You know, that he, he was uh, he played from the you know play all, all the Edmonton Oilers team and uh, I I feel like Hall of Fame is not I think like I feel like Hall of Fame should be more appreciated. It's not, it doesn't have to be a, a only points per game guy. I feel like it's about game of hockey and I think it's Kevin Love uh, brought a lot of good things to game of hockey and especially NHL. I think he deserves to go to deserves to go to Hall of Fame because I feel like you know we always uh, award players which is a great player to go to Hall of Fame because they have 2,000 points, which is great, you know. But I think a lot of guys who changed the game, you know, they didn't uh, made, made, they, I, I don't think they made a lot of points, but they, they won six Stanley Cups, you know, or they competed in uh, a lot of Olympic games or whatever like that, you know. 
I feel like they should uh, maybe change the view how to look at the players, you know, because I feel like it's always about the points. You know, you don't have to do anything else. You just uh, get points and uh, and have a big name while you play. And I, I feel like anybody who gets voted to Hall of Fame doesn't be Hall of Fame. Casper, a couple of questions. You mentioned um, Lundqvist um, in relation to Shesterkin, and you obviously were on the uh, 5 6 team with Hank as a rookie. And that was one of the more charismatic teams, one of the more popular teams, actually, that I have covered in my in my career. It was a very likable team. You guys far exceeded expectations. And I'm, I'm wondering what you can what you remember about that team. And why do you think it was such a, a special team? It's it's not only one of my favorite teams covering. I know a lot of fans, you know, have it as one of their favorite teams. So what about the, the chemistry on that team with with Yogs and all the checks um, on that club? You know, what about that team made it so special? Well, I think, you know, uh, I tell you one thing, Larry, because um, we had exactly the same atmosphere in Pittsburgh. And I think a lot of guys on that team were from Pittsburgh, you know, uh, uh, Roosevelt, uh, Yak, Colby, Straka, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, and, uh, and I think uh, we just came in and, uh, you know, and I think uh, Coach, Coach Rennie, he brought us, you know, this attitude that, you know, he made, he made the game fun for us. We had, you know, preseason training in West Point and things like that. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a, you know, it was a good time. And I think, uh, when Henry came on the team, also nobody expected him to be a great goalie. And I think a lot of guys knew from Europe that he was a great goalie. But, you know, he lived with me for almost three months, I remember. And, uh, I didn't really uh, realize until he started playing that he was a very good goalie, you know. So, uh, I think that, that the European, uh, anytime you have a lot of Europeans on the team, I think that's, uh, that's what happens sometimes. You know, guys become too relaxed and, uh, they don't take the game as serious. As, as they should, but sometimes I think they help the other guys around, you know, to have fun in the locker room and play, you know, play songs, you know, play songs top of the game. You know, we made all these different things that it made, it made, it made fun. You know, playing in New York Rangers, for the New York Rangers and Madison Square Garden should be fun. You know, it should be, you know, it shouldn't be like, oh my God, you know, this is, I hate to be in this. I hate to be here, you know. And I think everybody who, uh, who played, who played for the Rangers, they feel fortunate to be in the arena and you know, play there. So I feel like that, 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 that year, you know, we, uh, we had a good chemistry because you know we are great coaches and we are a good uh, leadership guys you know uh, I'm not patting myself on the shoulder but I know the Yaks and uh, Steve Ruchin you know uh, they, they did a good job keeping guys keep keeping guys actually Steve Ruchin was there at time. I was wondering too what what um, was the Yager who you played with in New York the same as the Yager you played with in Pittsburgh Yager, uh, I, I, you know what? I played with Yags the most in my career. I played this look in New York with him. Yags always, I think when he came to New York, he was more serious about the game. He did a lot of all-fight training by himself, you know, and, uh, and he, he brought a lot of younger kids with him, you know, to the ring, like, you know, Peter Puka and, uh, and, uh, the other, other check. So I feel like, you know, Yaks was more, he was an older player, but still very, very good and very, very strong player. So I feel like, you know, uh, when he came to the Rangers, you know, he realized how big is 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 to play for New York Rangers, and I think it took, it took it to the next level. Darius, I need to ask you because I've gotten to know you, and I know your lifestyle now is different than what it was when you were playing. You're a vegan. You're very careful in what you eat. You train hard. When you look back at your career, do you have any regrets on how you played the game, how you live, compared to who you are today? Well, no, Ronnie, I don't have any regrets. Because I think any lesson in life I learn, uh, life, it's, it's a, it's a lesson, you know, and I feel like I always, uh, ask myself if I'm, I'm here right now and, and I, yeah, I really love my life right now and I have a beautiful family, I have six kids, uh, you know, great wife. 
Uh, I live in Florida, which I always, I still can believe I, I, you know, I live here. And I always feel like if I change that thing or if I change that thing in my, in my career, I will maybe wouldn't have to be here, you know. I, I, I had a couple of bad marriages, of course, you know, but what, what, what comes to a diet, I feel like if I discover, uh, you know, this, uh, this way of life, uh, you know, eating a plant-based diet, I feel like, you know, I have a better chance to uh, be a better athlete in NHL. Even, even I train so hard all the time, but most of my training was about keeping a weight down and you know, not even getting stronger or just because there was such a big big focus in the in the league even from my first day in NHL you know Al Arbor used to bring the scale everywhere on the road and, and check how much you weigh you know and uh, going to Glenn Stater you know checking your weight almost every day I feel like it was such a big thing that you know I always felt pressure I have to be lighter I have to lose weight I didn't really think about the game how I play I felt like if I am five pounds overweight then uh, I'd be in trouble you know I think that part of my hockey game if I uh, had a chance to you know, learn about eating right and 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 and, and enjoying. I think uh, that would thing I would change. That's it. When you watch today's game, when you think of yourself playing in today's game, how do you think you do? Because you were so physical, probably broke a lot of rules as far as the clutching and the grabbing and the this and the that. How do you think you would play or be able to adapt in today's game? Well, I'll be awesome. I'll be like uh, one of the biggest players in the game. No, I, I don't know. You know, I feel like I would be, uh, you know, you would just uh, fit in. I feel like I would be hitting uh, people anyways, and then, and then we see what, what will happen. But I feel like today's game is today's game. You know, you can't compare that because every time I, I, I look at the 80s hockey, I'd be like, oh, my God. If I play in the 80s, I'd be probably like full coffee, you know, having a thousand points. You know what I'm saying? Because I was a good skater. I, I felt like I was a good skater, in, uh, you know. And I feel like if I played in the 70s, you know, we will totally different story. But now, it's a, you know, it's a different uh, different game. But I feel like we will, we, we will all, you know, because uh, we all have the spirit of competitiveness as an athlete. And I feel like if you are playing right now, even right now, I'm almost 50. I still feel like I can play. You know what I'm saying? I was play. I was playing with the guys from NHL, and I, I you know, I hit Mitri Kulikov. I hip checked him during the practice couple, uh, last week, and he was shocked. <laughs> was like, how can we do that? You know, it was just like you realize, you know, and uh, and I said, this is like, you know, just how old school does it, you know. So I feel like, you know, I, I would. Probably be okay. What is the highlight of your career? Was it the game seven, uh, the overtime goal against Buffalo? Was it uh, being on the Islander team that upset the Penguins? Was it playing for the Rangers? Can can you point to a highlight of your career? The you know the the warmest memory of your career? Uh, besides signing a big contract with the Rangers, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I think everybody everybody has a highlight. But honestly, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of highlights. But, you know, scoring game seven overtime goal and actually talking a night before the game, you know, if you score, wow, how we celebrate. And I was telling my roommates, uh, Rene Corbett, are you crazy? I would never score that. And, you know, if that happened, I remember the joy. And, and, and when you go back to Pittsburgh and people meeting in the airport with flowers, with signs, you know, I felt like a hero, you know what I'm saying? So uh, I feel an NHL highlight, that's, of course, game seven overtime goal. But, you know, winning gold medal Olympics also uh, can, cannot be that's that, you know, the feeling you have, the experience when you win a medal, gold medal, you know, it's like probably winning a Stanley Cup. Uh, I never did that, but I know that you guys will experience team joy. Well, Darius, we're going to leave it with that. 
okay and you've uh you've had a wonderful career you're celebrated back home you're celebrated here i know the ranger fans like you i always enjoyed being around you as we skate we play because uh you're one guy I can count on that's going to play hard and you will hit guys so that comparative uh, spirit you truly have thank you very much for your time my friend all right larry okay larry i miss you larry i'll see you soon yeah okay sounds good darius bye guys take care bye puts the icing on the cake for episode 30 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to Jake Brown for producing the show. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple, and we would love you guys to write in a positive review there too. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rondugate10. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your support. Looking forward to chatting again next week. Stay safe, folks.